This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Brad Listy. I just want to let you know I have a novel out. I wrote a novel. It's out there right now. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and an audiobook edition narrated by me. And if you want to read it, you can do that. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available right now from Ig. Hey there, how you doing? What's going on everybody? This is Brad Listy. I am the host of the the, uh, Other People Show and I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Melissa Chadburn, author of the debut novel, a tiny upward shove. It's like fear of failure, fear of success, which is it, you know, and, and I got the book contract and I blew up my life. I mean, I broke up with my partner at the time, who is my wife now, and um, I went and I like got a shitty apartment in Highland Park and like, <laughs> I, and, and that was another thing is like all my friends are sober and my wife is sober. And so I think I wanted to see what my life would look like with the lid blown off, like I needed to just do a little more research to see, you know, if I was truly had a problem with alcohol or not. And I did, and and luckily I had enough resources and like people around me to know, okay, like I wanna reach, you know, like I wanna live, I wanna be here. That was Melissa Chadburn, author of the debut novel, A Tiny Upward Shove, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. That conversation is imminent. Today's episode is made possible by Vintage, home to bold new voices in literature that push boundaries and expand perspectives. Vintage is proud to offer the brand new debut story collection by Nada Alec. It's called Bad Thoughts. I just talked to Nada on the program last week. The New York Times says, quote, Nada Alec depicts contemporary womanhood with a wry, uncensored voice reminiscent of those in Miranda July's off-kilter SoCal tales. This is a really funny book and a really smart book. It's just undeniable. That's what I keep saying about it. I loved it. It's an exhilarating and delightfully deviant debut story collection. With comedic precision and compulsive irreverence, it explores the most surreal 
and inadmissible fantasies of contemporary women. Again, it's called Bad Thoughts. It's available now from Vintage. It's by Nada Alec. Bad Thoughts. Go get it. Just trust me. Okay, today's guest once again is Melissa Chadburn. She has a debut novel out on FSG. It was published earlier this year to great critical acclaim. It is called The Tiny Upward Shove. It's a remarkable book. Truly a standout book when it comes to voice, lyricism. Just like what it is. I don't see books like this very often. It's a one-off, I guess you would say. It incorporates myth, folklore, Filipino uh, folklore, true crime, a love story, and just some really harrowing and visceral writing about abuse, violence, Violence against women in particular. Children caught up in the foster care system as Melissa Chadburn herself once was. And you will hear us talk about it all in just a second. I do want to say that Melissa and I go back a bit. You'll hear us talk about that too. She was a contributor to the Nervous Breakdown back in the day and... That's where I got to know her work and got to know her at literary events here in town. And it's just a thrill to see her a handful of years later publishing this book with FSG. A remarkable story and a a great book. And I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Melissa Chadburn and her debut novel, One More Time, is called A Tiny Upward shove. I am in Wrightwood, California, which is known as the City of Seasons in Southern California. It's like 90 miles east of LA proper and it's where everyone comes to like snowboard and pick apples and the Pacific Crest Trail runs right behind my house and so people are walking from Canada to Mexico and they're really pumped when they get to Wrightwood because that's where the post office is that the hikers get like their, you know, treats that they send themselves. Sure. It's a trail town. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm in my office, which is very cabiny looking. I'm told on zoom, they're like, where, what cabin are you in? And so (laughs) I'm trying to say, I'm I'm trying to see if I can detect cabin vibes. Maybe they're wood floors. It has wood floors. It has like wood lined walls. Then I have my butcher paper where I kind of try to like map things out in my brain. And then at my feet, out of everybody's view, I'm on my desk, but at my feet is my dog, often just warming my broken toe. (laughs) You broke your toe during jujitsu, you were telling me before we started. Correct. Thank you. I sound so badass now. You're Um, a martial artist. I did my second jujitsu class and I managed to break my toe. Who, how did you do? Were you kicking somebody? No, I wish. I was just like going around in a circle very fast. It was more like 
I broke my toe break dancing, <laughs> you know, because you're just kind of like wrestling and toggling on the ground. Yeah. And so you're relatively new to jujitsu. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I've only had two classes. Why? I mean, I this is something I have sort of fantasized about doing. I think it would be cool to know a martial art really well. I think I would feel like safer in the world or something. I have such a big boxing fantasy. I have to confess, like, I have always had a huge boxing fantasy. When I lived in L.A., I would, like, even when I went to the gym, I would, like, on the treadmill, I would, like, search shadow boxing when I was, like, really into it. You know who you, you, know who you should uh, hang with is Laura Vandenberg. Do you know her? I, I know of her, yeah. She's a, like, she's a badass boxer. Really? Yeah. I mean, I have always dabbled. Like, I did Muay Thai. I, I don't come from like a complete non-martial arts background. Like I did Taekwondo for a long time and I did Muay Thai and I, I actually did do boxing for a little bit, but it was just kind of like a pricey situation. Like what everything I love about boxing is that it's just like this working class, like fun, like you can do it anywhere grimy thing. But like in reality in Los Angeles, it's like, you know, Two hundred dollars a month or something, you know? Yeah. It's like ridiculous. Yeah, and you're so. like, and you're like sparring with like a reality TV star or something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I want to say, what was it? Like, I used to go to a yoga studio. This is going to sound very LA, but I used to go do yoga. And Gina Gershon was in my yoga class a lot. She was always mm -hmm. there. And then I was like reading. I saw something online in the way that one does where it was like, Gina Gershon is interviewed. And I was like, oh, they had that girl from the yoga studio. And of course <laughs> I clicked the link and she's like, you know, talking about her fitness regimen and how she like was boxing a lot and that her sparring partner was Bob Dylan. Oh, really? Like, I guess they went to, and I'm just like only in Los Angeles, you know, like you go to the gym yeah. and apparently like, and he was like in his sixties then. So, I mean, just... I don't know how much more random you can get than Gina Gershon and Bob Dylan sparring. Right. That's about, Sorry. it sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so you are now a few months removed from the publication of A Tiny Upward Shove, uh, yes. which is out from FSG in a lovely hardcover edition. This is one of those books where I'm like, wow, this is a really beautiful book to a, a degree that distinguishes itself. You have to be happy with how this thing turned out physically. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I love the cover. I was just thinking about you the other day in respect to the cover because I remember you talking once about, I don't know if it was on this podcast, it's likely on this podcast, about going to, you confessed going to Barnes & Noble and like signing your, your yeah. book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as a debut author, you know, I did have my Barnes and Noble moment where like when the book first came out, I went to Barnes and Noble and often it would be like one copy like shelved in the fiction section. Like I, in my fantasy, you walk in and it's like the new release section and they're all there out front on display. And um, that's not what happened. There was like one, you know, and there, and I and I thought of you and I like was like, do I? Do I, do I sign? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the, the comparison that I always make, like the joke that I always make is that like, it's like going to the hospital to visit somebody who's sick. Like you're going into the bookstore to visit your book. Like as if it's a, right. as if it's like a patient, you know, an inpatient in the hospital. And I've but, done a little bit of that this time around with my new book, but I've been better. Like my first book, yeah. I could not resist every bookstore. I would go in and check yeah, on it. I, I, and then 
but then after the disappointment, you're like, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. But then at the beginning of summertime, they did. So it wasn't aligned with my publication date, but at the beginning of summertime, they did put it out in the new release section with the other new releases and they had more than one copy. But the rumor is, I don't know, the word on the street is that there's this person in Barnes and Noble marketing who has like all this power, who not only decides like where your book is in the store, but can also sometimes have like cover input, like uh, design input. And so um, I don't know if like initially going back to the image, like I don't know if initially she wasn't impressed with the cover and that's why it didn't get shelved the way I wanted it to be shelved. But then after the reviews, it changed that. But I think I just imagine this like all powerful woman somewhere who just like decides these things. Yeah, I mean, it's a mystery to me. I know that publishers pay a lot of money. They can pay a lot of money for placement too. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure there's somebody internally who makes those choices and there are aesthetic decisions or aesthetic components to the decision. Uh, you have to be thrilled with the reception that this book has gotten. It is a really remarkable piece of work that I have a bit of a personal stake in because I remember you from years ago. I, I can't even, I was trying to remember when we met. Maybe it was online, the first, the first mm -hmm. way that we interacted, but the nervous breakdown years ago, my online lit site. Remember you writing for that? You were in LA. We probably crossed paths at like a lit event or something. Like your mm -hmm. memory might be better than mine. But when I heard of the publication of this book and kind of saw the reviews start to trickle out, I was thrilled. I was like, wow, you know, uh, she made it or something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was, <laughs> it was great to see because uh, I knew, I know that, you, you know, I knew then and I know that now that you've been on the road, you know, for a while working at this and to see it come to fruition is lovely. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I think that hopefully what your listeners can appreciate is that this was like a seven year project, like seven years from contract to publication, not seven years from draft. I mean, it's been a lifetime project if we talk about drafts, but it's been a seven year project from contract to publication. And I, I do think, I mean, it, uh, I'm suddenly feeling really emotional, but I do feel like there are a couple of people. I remember like early on hearing uh, Rob Spillman talk about literary citizenry at like the Tin House workshop and there are a couple of like key sort of literary citizens who have really helped usher me along the way and I feel really fortunate to have you know been been a part of that just generosity and you are one of them I mean I think of you and Eden Lepucky and Matt Bell I mean people who just love books and reading and talk about literature in such a way that it made me feel part of this like larger conversation, you know? And I think Los Angeles is a really interesting place to be a writer because we are, you know, not New York, but like we are our own sort of family of, of authors as well. You know, Matthew Spector and yourself and Eden Lepucky, I just feel like really helped usher this book out into the world. And I feel really lucky for that. Well, that's lovely of you to say, and I agree, you know, about the uh, the other folks and and about like the strange 
uh, and kind of cool sense of family or connection that you feel with people who are writers in your hometown. I, I think this is probably the case anywhere. And something that you said earlier that I want to dive into a bit more is the fact that there were seven years in between contract and publication. That's, mm-hmm. an, that's an unusually long span of time. I'm wondering what, what got you the contract in the first place? Was it a manuscript or was it a kind of a sample or... <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a manuscript. I mean, so I entered publication at the time where, like, one, I had to, you know, have a complete manuscript to get my agent. So I went through that. And then my agent is one of the agents who kind of offer notes along the way before we took it out to market. Who Who is your agent, may I ask? Oh, Ellen Levine. Okay. At Trident. Sure. Um, and she's also super old school. Like, she only takes submissions on exclusion. So so she gave me notes prior to sending it out to market. And then she sent it out to market. And I had to get blurbs before even, like, went. You know, I had to get blurbs when it went out to market. So that's another thing, you know, that's, like. <laughs> so I had a full manuscript and blurbs. And then my editor took it, um, I had a really kismet situation with my editor and I'm really fortunate for that too, which is that I, bef- I got into Breadloaf uh, Writers Conference and before Breadloaf, I flew to New York to like meet my agent for the first time. And um, I told her, you know, these are all the editors who are going to be at Breadloaf. Who should I, you know, I can only have like two pitch sessions because I was like, who should I talk pitch my book to and she was like well everybody and I'm like yeah but I get to pick too like of all these people who and we both thought Jenna Johnson would be a good fit I thought Jenna Johnson would be a good fit because she worked with Justin Torres and We the Animals and like any I'm like any editor who can you know fight for a novella with that essentially has no plot is who I want to work with (laughs) (laughs) right that's who I need in my corner (laughs) yeah and so we agreed I would speak with her. And um, then I got on the plane in New York to go to Redloaf, and she was my seatmate. Oh, Jenna my Johnson. God. <laughs> Look at that. Meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, now looking back, we joke because, like, that's, like, her worst fear, you know? It's right. Like... <laughs> Sitting next to a writer who's just like, hey, I have a manuscript. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, can have my, you can have my peanuts if you want. Here, I'll, you, exactly. can, you can have my pretzels. Sacred spaces, you know, it's like, especially for someone who has to read a copious amount of writing, you know, it's like, oh, good time to like just uninterrupted time to like uh, read and give notes or whatever. Sure. Or just sit in silence before I'm in front of all these people for a week, you know, and like completely peopled out. Like, I think people have less emotional spare change in spaces of transportation like that, you know, but, um, we totally hit it off, and by the time the plane landed, she had requested my manuscript from from Ellen. But she did take it on the pretense that, like, I don't normally take work. Like, this is not a completed manuscript. In that, like, I thought it was completed, but it wasn't. It wasn't camera ready, in her opinion, you know. And so she was just kind of like, I normally don't take drafts 
this early on, but I'm going to take it and we're going to work on it together. So that hence the seven years was part of it is that like she she says like I should think of that time as time that I normally would have been workshopping it with somebody else. In this case, I was just workshopping it with her. That's very unique. Yeah. And, and then she changed publishing houses too. So that sort of switch the the publishing cycle on me too a little bit which i happens a lot i guess with people is that their editors i mean that's the state nature of the industry which is another thing that i was completely unfamiliar with and made me really nervous so she left a publishing house went to fsg and then brought she your project with you. hmh and then she went to fsg and she took it with her she did okay okay yeah this is a like how would i describe it it's a big book. Mm-hmm. It's a comp. It's an emotionally and stylistically complex book. There's there's a lot happening here, and I'm wondering if you could. Do you have a pitch? Like, do you have like an elevator pitch for how do you describe this book in like two sentences? You know what I'm saying? Like, I was trying to imagine what it would be. Um, how is uh, how how systems can fail both like a a victim and a predator. I don't know. Um, that was one of them. I could also say that this is like my fun one is like it's an intersectional, you know, trans-Pacific intersectional feminist thriller. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. There you go. You know, and I think it's also a romance if you look at it another way. It's like. A- it's queer romance. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> it's all of these different things happening at once. And knowing you a little bit and knowing a little bit about your bio and then also intuiting some of your bio from the text itself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all books are a kind of psychological and emotional synthesis for the author. But like you said earlier, this book feels like a lifetime project. Like to get this story told, it just mm-hmm. feels deeply personal and hard won. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it has a coda. You don't often find a coda in a novel, you know? I'm also a different person than the person who sold this book seven years ago. I mean, I got sober, you know, I, I'm in a doctoral, I'm a doctoral candidate at USC for creative writing. So, you know, I think I had to like interrogate a lot of big ideas that I've always had, but I acquired new language for it and I was able to engage other thinkers on some of these ideas. And while you're writing a novel, as you know, you you still have to make money. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, I, I sort of developed as a creative nonfiction writer in the interim because you can't like, jump in and out of this world of fiction you know it was the only other thing I could publish while I was working on this novel because I'm constantly jumping in and out of this world and so I I did some journalism I did a lot of journalism I did a lot of reporting on the child welfare system and I write creative nonfiction. and so I think that that also all of that is kind of present in this book it's kind of like a book about everything in that sense yeah well I mean just the inclusion uh of Willie Picton that's the name, right? Yeah. You know, he's a he's a real figure, you know, from uh, Canada, like a serial killer. Mm-hmm. and But he factors into the world of your book fictionally. Yeah. I mean, I was always fascinated with him. And I did say, like, oh, when I finish this, 
of course, in the beginning, this was just sort of like auto fiction, you know, as a lot of first novels can be. And then, uh, but I was like, when I'm done with that book, I can't wait to write this book about Willie Pickton, you know? And so um, I thought, and then I realized one day, well, why don't I just put Pickton in the book, you know? And, so, and who is Willie Pickton for people listening? Because I got to be honest, oh, I, I had not heard of him until I he's read- He's a Canadian serial killer. He's from Fort Coquitlam and he preyed upon women in, you know, a specific section of Vancouver. And he was also a pig farmer. And uh, there's a large- Filipino population in Vancouver and even on his farm he would often like have chicken fights and stuff with a local Filipino farmer and so in that way it sort of intersected really well with the Filipino folklore. Um, my narrator is this figure in Filipino folklore called the Oswang who is kind of like a shapeshifter and you know depending on where you're from in the Philippines she could be construed as like a werewoman or a shapeshifter or a spinster, you know, a woman who lives alone. And so, uh, but there's a lot of presence of, of pigs and pork in like Filipino mythology. And so I thought that it, it made sense to incorporate all three. And it, it did talk, talking about Willie Picton gave me the opportunity to talk about at the time that Willie Picton was operating like the late 90s or the mid 90s were a really pivotal time in Los Angeles for foster care and the child welfare system because there were a lot of shifts being made at the time and we had welfare reform at the time and so that sort of really bogged down our system and it was the time of the LA uprising and so Wait, I got a couple, to- couple things you were in the foster care system in LA Correct I was in the foster care system in LA at that time. And the LA uprising was what, 92 tied to uh, Correct. 92 with uh, like the riots and Rodney yeah, King. Rodney King. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just so people so, are oriented. Yeah. So those were like, I think pivotal touch points to talk about like the multiple breakdowns in terms of like economic violence. A lot of people really settle on like the actual physical and sexual violence in this book but i did want to bring attention to all the systemic breakdowns and the economic violence that was occurring at this time and at the same time there were multiple serial killers preying upon women along the Lougheed highway which is which runs from like portland to uh canada and there were like four or five serial killers in the same area preying upon mostly First Nations women. And there was a huge amount of co-infection of addiction, hepatitis, and HIV. But there were very few recovery beds for women in, this, in the Lower East Side in, the, in Vancouver. And so I just wanted to somehow bring attention to all of these breakdowns along the way. It seemed... It seemed plausible that my that the, my main character Marina, who went through the foster care system in the mid '90s, would engage with sexual violence and economic violence, and 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 engage with sex work and find herself on that Lougheed Highway, and in in Canada. So um, that gave me the opportunity to talk about these things. And so interestingly, like your Marina, you mentioned is uh, doing sex work. She mm-hmm. dies on like page one. Mm-hmm. 
So Marina's dead. The Oswang kind of takes over to avenge her. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, like, I feel, I kind of like set the book down and thought, oh, this is like a heavy lift. Like that's a big task <laughs> that you gave yourself as a writer. You know, it adds like a supernatural element. You've got to make sure you're bringing the reader along. Mm-hmm. Did you, was it ever otherwise? Like when did you make the decision to go with the Oswang as the narrator? An unconventional choice. I, I knew the Oswang was always going to be the narrator, but I will say that structure was my biggest challenge. I mean, structure has always been my biggest challenge. You know, like what's the right container for your story? And we spend a lot of time, like we were um, joking before the start of this about my butcher paper, but like I, I did map out this book on butcher paper all along I was staying in this apartment in Iowa and like my whole room was just butcher paper and mapping out other books that I can possibly use as like a skeleton for this book you know I I mapped out like in cold blood and I just remember Kyle you know Kyle Miner yeah I mean I know of him he came over and he was like you vonnegated the place, you know, because it was just like <laughs> the whole the whole room was my novel mapped out in butcher paper, and um, but and and I and I do remember like for me what felt super painful because I was just so insecure, you know, I had never written a book before, and I didn't know at that point if I could, you know, because it was such a long trajectory, and I my editor at one point told me like you're like a bodybuilder who has no skeleton, like is all muscle, (laughs) no skeleton. (laughs) Because like my prose, I can confidently say like I I give good prose, you know, like I have a strong prose game, but like structure was definitely a a big challenge, you know, like if you found a piece of my writing on the street, like you would know it was mine, I think. But I knew the, the first pages were always set and the title chapter was always set, but like, the mechanics of it all was really hard to come by. And so for the listeners, like there's the fictive present, which is the Oswang who's narrating in between, like, how did we get here sort of chapters, right? So it starts with the death. And I think that's also sort of making a play on like the trope of a, of a thriller or a true crime. You know, it often starts with the death of a woman, often a young white woman. And, you know, and then the rest of the book is the pursuit for some sort of carceral justice, you know, and in this case, it was like, it did start with a death, but also in a way, it started with a birth, because it's like the death of the character, but then the birth of the Oswang, who is like this badass, you know, figure of Filipino folklore. Avenger. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Avenger, who, you know, as an aside, like at the time, I was also, you know, reporting on this really harrowing case within the LA County foster care system. So, and I was in this docu-series called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, and it was just harrowing on all parts because there was, there were multiple social worker interventions, but nothing was done. And, you know, the kid died a torturous, terrible death. And it was the first time in LA County that LA County social workers were being charged with felony charges for failure to respond to report. So I was reporting on this trial every day for like, you know, two years, and then it became a a documentary. But at the 
the parents' trial or the mother and the stepfather's trial ended with the death penalty and life imprisonment. And, you know, the whole gallery of the courtroom just jumped up, you know, in joy when um, the sentences were let out, you know, and people, and I really just, I really wanted to trouble our idea of justice, you know, like what is justice? And I knew in this text I wanted to trouble justice and what our idea of justice is and, and make space for mercy. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, because, you know, we talked about the Avenger and you're talking about justice, but this is also a remarkably compassionate book. Because like you said earlier in the conversation, it's about victim and perpetrator and how they kind of get to where they are. And this book, to an unusual degree, has compassion for the perpetrator and Mm -hmm. the things that create uh, the, the things that might help to create a person who does terrible, violent things to other people. And I also got the feeling, and you can correct me if this is not the case, but I got the feeling in reading the book that you were sort of imagining roads that you could have traveled earlier in your life you know, you're kind of a remarkable story, Melissa, like considering all that you've been through, like you're a a person who's suffered through sexual violence, has been in the foster care system, had a very difficult upbringing, has struggled with uh, addiction and, you know, you're in recovery, you know, and now you're getting your PhD and you have a novel out on FSG. (laughs) It's, It's not like, it's not the most common story. And it's also like a kind of a triumphant story. It's awesome. But I, I just got the sense in reading this novel that it was like you imagining roads that you could have easily taken, but, you know, through grace and hard work did not. Is that accurate? Yeah, sure. I think so. And just pure, I don't know, like luck maybe or something, you know, like I've survived two brothers too, you know. Um, I often say like, I have a brother who died of a heroin overdose and I have a brother who died uh, from AIDS, HIV, and like my brother who died from HIV's last words were, I'm not ready yet. And my brother who died of a heroin overdose's last words were, fuck it. You know, and like, we're, we're what? I, fuck it, you know, probably <laughs> along those lines, you know. <laughs> and um, I felt like my whole life I was just like swinging on that pendulum between like, fuck it, and not ready yet, and fuck it, and not ready yet. And like, for a long time, I felt like my my work in recovery was try to be like comfortable in the center of that pendulum. But like, I'm just, you know, so in lots of senses, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky. I have a lot of survival guilt probably, you know, but like I, I didn't, you know, I, I lived and, and I was, I did grow up thinking like, I wouldn't live past a certain age, you know, which I've succeeded now. (laughs) But I mean, most people who go through the foster care system, don't graduate high school more or less go on to you know a fully funded uh phd program in creative writing you know um so i i do feel um very fortunate for that you must i mean you talk about luck and you talk about survivor's guilt but i there's also like survival instincts uh, Mm -hmm. or just like some some kind of strength like some something to the fiber of who you are that has allowed you to endure. I, I've had conversations on this show and, you know, in other situations in my life with people who might fit that bill. 
And it seems like some people just have a resourcefulness or a will to live and endure and maybe like a natural street smarts or some good instincts or something that factor into it as well. Uh, do you think of it that way? I do not. I do not because I, I'm aware of the massive privilege that I have. Like I'm a very light skinned person, you know, um, my brother was not, and I'm passing in lots of ways. And I was a very attractive young girl and mostly survival was like ingratiating myself to my rich friends, parents and getting them to adopt me. You know, I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles too, which is like, there is this, thing about LA where lawlessness occurs between really wealthy kids and like really poor kids. And so like at the time we would just all hang out, you know, in Westwood village and like, you know, get changed together and buy forties and like <laughs> drink in the park together. But like I was that kid who you can bring home to your parents and I was always like, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And like, all oh, the parents loved me. Like all these celebrities, kids, this would, you know, they would be like, okay, you know, Melissa's in charge today. And like, <laughs> <laughs> and like call me for an update on their kids. And I was fortunate, like a, more than once, my friend's parents have fostered and adopted me. In fact, it was a foster parent who paid for me to go to Breadloaf, actually, so that I could attend Breadloaf when I met my editor, you know, and um, unfortunately, he um, he died of uh, cancer before my book came out. I wish he could have seen it. But I was just, I got tons of help along the way. And I, because I think the reason why I reject that idea, as much as I have always had a really strong hunger around reading and writing, especially like when I was a kid, I used to write what kids would call fan fiction. Now, like I would just get screeds of paper from my mom's printer at work. You know, those like that paper with the green and white stripes and the holes on the side. <laughs> and I would go with my mom to work and I would write these like long Ramona Quimby books, you know, or complicated narratives about me being best friends with like Alyssa Milano or something. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think we all wanted to be friends with Melissa, Alyssa Milano when we were yeah. people of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be. And and um, so that hunger has always been there. The love of language has always been there. But like uh, the reason why I reject it is because what about the kids who don't make it? It's not because they didn't have that like, you know, that drive themselves. It's just that I think there's the system is incredibly flawed and works against us in so many ways, you know, it's more common to, 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 to fall through the cracks than it is to make it through, you know, I think I just happen to be in proximity to people with more resources. So you, as a child were raised by your mother, uh, until you weren't, mm -hmm. and then you enter the foster care system and you said mm -hmm. you were kind of like hanging around, like with was this after you got out of foster care that you were hanging around with the children of celebrities in Westwood Village? No, it was like before. I think my mom had undiagnosed mental illness and I never really know who was ho coming home when I was with her, like what sort of mood she'd be in. And she was very abusive and she believed in corporal punishment, but she, I mean, 
what we'd sort of worked out with each other was like, I would just run away for a couple of weeks and come back and we'd act like nothing happened. Or she would wake up the next day and act like nothing happened. Like, um, it was one of those things. And so I had already had friends, you know, when I was running away and stuff, I would, I would hang out with kids in Westwood village and who like lived in Brentwood and stuff. I say Westwood village because for those people who are listening and aren't familiar with like Los Angeles at the time, like all public transportation kind of went to Westwood Village. Like downtown was just, if you didn't live there, it was just so hard to access for someone who didn't drive, you know? And so, but all public transportation led to Westwood Village for some reason. I mean, and it was like a hub where there were movie theaters and stuff and uh, maybe because of UCLA, but. Yeah, I was going to so, say that's where UCLA is, so. Yeah, that's where UCLA is. So I would, I lived in like the Palms area at the time. And, and then these kids lived in like Brentwood in the Palisades and they would just go to Westwood Village. Like take the bus. Yeah, they would take the bus. So <laughs> then you enter uh, the foster care program. How long were you in it? I, I got emancipated when I was like 17 and a half. And so... I guess I technically entered it around like 13 or so, seventh grade. And what that meant was that the county was my guardian. And I did have people whose parents would foster me. But then like, what I didn't know is that you go to court like every six months. And at the time, the real... Mo that was a moment where we're in now again, where there was a big movement in foster care around family reunification and getting the kids with their with their biological family. So I would go to court every six months to check my mom's progress and my progress to see if we can get back together. But I always kind of thought that like my first placement was going to be my last. I thought like, oh, you know, this family is yours and they're your family forever, but it turned out that that wasn't the case. So I ended up having to, I would go to a family and then I would go to like a group home and then I would go to another group home and another family. And, um, but I was so, so old and mature at that time that like adoption wasn't going to be a thing that I did. I just got emancipated and did my own thing after that. Well, and the, you know, this is described in the book, the emancipation process and what it's like to suddenly be on your own at 17. Yeah. I mean, you get like a small stipend from the county or whatever. Yeah. And maybe some what uh, some sort of help with housing, but it's not that much considering. It's the still the same. Yeah. It's like you get you can get soap housing, which is like ILP apartment. And it's like it's a cheap apartment. But if you get like. I don't know how much money they give you now, but they give at the time they give you two hundred dollars a month, which is like in Los Angeles. That's like that's you. Might, they might as well give you twenty bucks a month. You know, I mean, it's like yeah, you're not getting very you're not getting very far on two hundred bucks no. a month. No, I mean, and then you st when did you start to develop uh, substance abuse issues? I imagine this was like going into your going back into like even when you were a teen and hanging out with your friends on the bus or whatever. Yeah, I don't know, actually, that was really, I was a really late bloomer in that respect. Like, I was so scared about being vulnerable in public places when I was young. I mean, because I was in group homes and stuff. So I was kind of always the one who was like, in charge and a caretaker of myself and other people. But I didn't ever want to be 
sexually vulnerable. Like I didn't ever, you know, so I wouldn't. And, and if you think about it, like in group homes, you're in a room with at least six other kids all the time. So I always was like aware, like I, um, one of my biggest fears when I first went into group homes and foster care was like, what is sleep going to look like? You know, like how I have a really hard time sleeping in front of other people, even to this day, like I will not sleep on a plane or a train, you know, I, I don't like to sleep in public. And so I had a lot of checks and balances in place all my life in that respect. And I had people around me who had much bigger substance abuse issues. And so I think that that acted as a check and balance also, you know, like I had friends who were hardcore um, heroin addicts and drug addicts. And so I never, and which I would have never, I was like more a guilt shame addict. You know, like I, I was more interested in control of myself and my surroundings. So I didn't have that issue. But then when I got older, I, I started just drinking more on my own. Like I definitely wanted to like just check out completely and I, that makes sense though after all those years all those years of having to kind of be an adult before your time to be the caretaker to be on guard to to be feeling like a lot of aloneness you know that's a lot to bear for any for a young person and then to get a little bit of remove for that and to just be basically out of gas that's what it sounds yeah. like yeah, like I've always had a boxing fantasy and I've also always had a remote control fantasy, which was like, can we all just take a beat here? You know, like, can I just put the world on pause? And, yeah, yes, yes. And I think that that is the way my uh, alcoholism sort of expressed itself. It was just like my remote control fantasy on fleek, so to speak. And, and how long did it last before you got sober? Not long at all. I mean, like two years. I mean, I just was like, I, uh, well, it's probably also connected to this book in the sense that like, I got the contract and I was like, terrified and insecure and I blew up my life. You know, it's like, a lot of people are worried about like, things falling apart. But for me, like the gifts are really hard for me to accept, you know. And in this sense, like, I, I think I was just really afraid of, of it's like fear of failure or fear of success, which is it, you know, and, and I got the book contract and I, I, I blew up my life. I mean, I broke up with my partner at the time who is my wife now. And, um, I went and I like got a shitty apartment in Highland park. And like, <laughs> I, and, and that was another thing is like all my friends are sober and my wife is sober. And so I think I wanted to see what, my life would look like with the lid blown off. Like I needed to just do a little more research to see, you know, if I was truly had a problem with alcohol or not. And I did. And, and luckily I had enough resources and like people around me to know, okay, like I want to reach, you know, like I want to live. I want to be here. I want to accept these like miracles. All right, like I deserve these miracles everybody deserves these miracles like um all those fears and facing them is worth trying to figure out if this thing shakes out or not and what was the relationship between sobriety and creativity i think i was really scared that i would not be able to write sober you know i mean everybody's scared of not being able to dance not being able to fuck and not being able to write sober it's like it because i 
I was like a smoker for a long time in the past. I mean, that was the one addiction that I knew I had, like from jump. Like I cannot just be a casual smoker. Like if I smoke a cigarette, that I'm going to be a pack a day smoker, you know. And and so and that, like I would break up my time all the time with with like my time was so transactional. It would be like I'm going to read this chapter and then I'll smoke a cigarette. I'm going to do this and then I'll smoke a cigarette. And I think that in time. I did that with alcohol, which was like, you know, I'm going to write and then I can have a drink or like I'm doing something. For some reason, I thought that it counted as an event if there was alcohol involved, you know, like. And so, yeah, I think I was worried about that. But then it got to the point where I wasn't able to remember what I read. And that scared the shit out of me, like to have to read a book over and over. I mean, that still happens in sobriety for sure, but like... I was going to say, I, I, if, if that's a problem, then I've got a huge issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't remember what I read. And then like going to school sober, every new thing is scary, right? But going to school sober, I realized like, oh my God, this brain, like I have a really good, neat brain. And I, I kind of like lamented the time that I didn't take advantage of it, you know, because... Um, I was just like uh, mummying out, you know, like I, I just know that thing of like not being fully present or being like, I need to get through my day so I could just like be, uh, you know, gushy pile of nothing at the end of it. <laughs> like that, that was the goal. <laughs> so like be a gushy pile of nothing. And like, in fact, like there's so much life, you know, like I can enjoy being around I'm spending a lot of time like babysitting my nephews now and like I can really enjoy like being present with them and like taking them to like the arcade or like you know hiking or whatever and I took them to, I, I enrolled them in jiu-jitsu the other day and like I'm fully there you know and um it's neat to be in life but also I I do remember early on going to AA meetings and hearing people who had like strokes and stuff and couldn't read anymore and that just like scared the shit out of me like to not be able to do this thing that I love so much. And then yeah, to like be handed this opportunity, like I got a book contract with like a pretty big publishing company. Can you imagine if I just was like, okay, like let me just get drunk instead. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is essentially what was happening, which is like, oh, you don't like that draft? Well, okay, well maybe I'll just drink <laughs> <laughs> I have a great I have a great answer I know exactly what I'm gonna do uh, in response to the fact that the first draft isn't ready I'm just gonna get fucked up for a couple years <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so did your editor know that you were struggling with uh, drinking were you cluing her into this or was it something that you kind of told her after the fact <laughs> yeah no I didn't clue her into this but she did have like this kind of come to Jesus with me at one point where she was just kind of like look, every time I give you notes, you go back and then you come back with a completely different manuscript, you know, which was the way I was responding to notes. Instead of just like taking this thing here, this thing there, I would come, I, I've written basically like 20 books in this time because I would just come back with something totally different. I was just kind of like, I had no artistic integrity at all. I was just kind of like, who do you want me to be? What do you want me to be? And I would like leave with her notes and then read like 45 different books and then, you know, give her something else completely. And, um, and I think that that was probably from 
the drinking and stuff, you know, just not my thinking was, was fueled completely by fear. Like I was just stuck in that tunnel. And once you get sober and you have some clarity and like community, you clearly have found a kind of mission in delving into the stories of people caught in these broken systems and bringing the stories of those human lives to the fore, either through journalism and creative nonfiction or now this novel. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear you talk about the differences in like reportage, like in this uh -huh. space versus like diving into it in a novel that takes on like mm -hmm. supernatural elements and, mm -hmm. you know, and the like, like what, how do the two work together? And like, what have been the differences? Well, I think like uh, the main limitation with reporting is the supposed both sideism, you know, that we're supposed to be objective. And I just don't think there's a such thing as objectivity. And so, I mean, I have heard people in the past say that fiction allows us to tell the truth, you know, in some sense, in that way. Um, like right now, I'm working on my dissertation project, and um, it's uh, I have all these case records of kids who died while in LA County's foster care system, and they're it's from, for the past five years, and there are these like heavily redacted case records and I've always been like you know well what can I do with these you know there's reporting where I could just unredact them and I did that and it just wasn't very satisfying because it still felt like the same violence was occurring you know in terms of the gaze and like what I'm pointing towards and what people are looking at and and then I tried like doing uh, shifting the gaze by doing like a different kinds of readings of the redactions and that wasn't really satisfying and also people have a really hard time engaging with these narratives obviously they're like very challenging narratives for people that I mean we're talking about maternal infanticide and filicide and then one day I was like it was early on in the pandemic and it was right after the documentary came out which People will watch anything. <laughs> I don't notice that. Like, like, like nobody reads, but everybody watches TV. Because sure. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> people were like stopping me on the street after that thing came out. But like, anyways, I was walking in the forest, like in the snow, and I was listening to a fairy tale. And I was like, oh, yeah, like this is one vehicle where people can engage this narrative of maternal filicide and infanticide is fairy tales. And so I've been translating these case records to fairy tales and as part of my dissertation project. And so I think like, I think um, enchantment does two things. Like it does something for the reader where it like dulls our sort of sense making brain, like where we're like trying to like figure things out. Like true crime is kind of the opposite, right? Where like you listen to true crime and, and you want to solve the crime too, you know, like you become engaged in this sense. Whereas enchantment, I think, allows you to just um, normalize the magic in a narrative. And, you know, you don't wonder like why the wolf is talking all of a sudden to Little Red Riding Hood. You're just like, oh, okay, the wolf is talking, you know. And um, so I think that fiction just kind of allow, just gives you a whole nother set of tools to 
to sort of tell these stories because I'm not, I do have an agenda when I'm telling these narratives, you know, like I am, I'm not interested in both sidedism. Like I am, I've even beyond writing, like I spent a lifetime working as a labor union organizer. Like I'm always trying to upend economic violence. And so whatever vehicle I can use to, to further do that. Um, and I think so, yeah, fiction allowed for magic and allowed for the magic for the type of justice that I'm interested in, which is mercy, you know, like a, a, a more complicated and nuanced story. Do you have a sense of like overarching, like lifelong mission, like on this beat? Like, is this your beat? And are you going to be writing about this for the rest of your days? Or do you feel like you've kind of with the documentary film and mm -hmm. the journalism work and now this novel, like, do you feel like you've, you said what you needed to say? I don't know. I mean, it's been a, such a big obsession, you know, so I don't know. And it's probably, if it's not one thing, it's your mother, right? Like it's always, <laughs> that's going to be an ongoing obsession in my work. Cause like I said, this is my dissertation project now. And so that's another book, the fairy tale thing. I think I might just find different ways of telling a similar kind of story over and over again. But as long as it's fun too, you know, I really enjoy entertaining folks at the same time, but I don't imagine me writing something that doesn't have some sort of, you know, meaning, uh, something that has to do with the human condition, you know? I mean, I just, I don't see myself going further, going too far from that. How far off are you from finishing your PhD? I'm ABD, so that means that this whole year I don't have to do anything but write my dissertation. Wow. That's exciting, oh, no. but it's also I like, know. but it's also like now you got to get the dissertation written. <laughs> like, yeah, <don't>. exactly. <laughs> so, the, having the book come out, getting over the line, you know, after all this dreaming and all this time and all these years and all these personal upheavals and changes, did the experience of publishing this book surprise you in any ways? Did it live? Did it live up to how you imagined it? Did, did it underwhelm you? <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been like lamenting about this for so long, <laughs> for so long in the last six minutes that my book's been out. But I mean, I I think I had this fantasy. I just got really honest with my wife yesterday, really just yesterday we mentioned this. I think I did keep the door open of hope a little bit that like perhaps... I kind of hoped that this book would be like my escape hatch, like that, you know, maybe it would be adapted to a film and that would like, I would be able to contribute financially to my house in all the ways that it's wreaked havoc. Right. <laughs> like, right. My marriage, you know, where it's like, look, honey, it was worth it. Like all those residencies, like all those degrees, like here we can, I can pay off the house. Oh yeah. Here, here's a hot tub. I got you a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I do think that I, I had a little bit of that magical thinking. I never said it aloud. I never admitted it, but it was always there in the back of my mind. Like this might be our golden ticket, you know? So in that way, yes, it did disappoint me. But, but hey, <laughs> welcome to the club. I think you have like 99,999 out of 100,000 writers, you know, it's like... <laughs> 
that's the experience. And I don't think, I don't think you are alone at all in having magical thinking, you know, be part of the process. And I would even argue that you might not be able to even write a book without magical thinking. How can you possibly endure the process without having some hope, you know, or belief to keep you going? You know, that's not all that keeps you going, but I certainly feel that way. Like you, you do have to have some kind of magical belief in your project just to get it done. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, especially because, you know, when you're in the early stages of writing, you're sort of protecting your heart because you're like, wait, is this a book? Is it out of book? Is it a book? Is it not a book? And then you get to like page 100 and you're like, okay, fuck it. You know, it's a book. Like, here we go. Right. Um, right. <laughs> this is going to be my obsession for the next, you know, two years or whatever. And um, I will also say that I thought for some reason, like, you have a book come out and then you go on this tour. But I, I didn't realize like the finance aspects of it. Like I thought for some reason, like I would just be independently wealthy. Like my wife and I would go travel together and I would go to these bookstores that were just filled with people like waiting to, to hear me talk about my book and I would sign them and then we would go in hotels and be gallivanting. And it really like that's, not what it looked like at all. Like it was more like my tour of naps. Like I would go to like <laughs> one town, I would take a nap, I would go to the bookstore, you know, if I was lucky, five to 10 people would be there. And then I would go to the next place. And meanwhile, like my wife was staying home, like taking care of the dog and the bills and her job, you know, and sure. um, we'd make a series of phone calls and that was it, you know. I mean, I did feel kind of lonely at times, too, on the tour. And what a fucking Cadillac problem, you know. Like, we were in the center of a global... We were, like, in the middle of a global pandemic. And, you know, I, I'm lucky I even got any kind of tour, quite frankly. And, you know, and that there was there were no shipment issues with my book or anything. Like, it came out on time. and But I was also still reeked with, like, fear and concern about my um I was I had oral exams and then I my book got published and I was like presenting the LA Times Fiction Prize like all on the same day and so <laughs> I wasn't really present I've just landed in my body basically like a week ago like I it's a lot present. it's a lot I mean there's a lot of emotional content to having a book come out after a long struggle to get it there and then there's also just like the physical, like the physical toll that it takes, the travel, but then all the, all the work that you have to do to organize and to, you know, handle logistics and to try to run marketing and publicity. Not that you don't have some help with that, but a lot of it is incumbent upon the writer. And yeah. I've had conversations about this recently. I mean, I've had conversations about this for the entire decade that I've done this show, you know, where you know, writers are either celebrating or lamenting the fact that there's all this work to do in addition to writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know where you land on that. Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, speaking personally, I don't mind doing some of it. You know, I, I'm happy to like stump for my own book mm -hmm. to a degree. But there's a point at which I start to bristle. It's like, hey, like, <laughs> I wrote the thing, you know, and now I've got to be yeah. out there like, you know, executing some grand strategic plan on its behalf and to be tireless constantly and doing this entire other job. It's a lot mm -hmm. to ask, isn't it? I think so. I mean, 
I'm just, so I have such strong jealousy for Elena Ferrante. I remember uh, Melissa Fibo said it's kind of like pouring steroids on all your character defects because they're like, okay, go out, you know, get attention for the book now, you know. <laughs> and I didn't like how like self-absorbed I was becoming because I was just like so insecure, you know. I was constantly like thinking about like what I looked like and. Oh, fuck, you know, I'm old, I'm fat in that picture, blah, blah, blah. like, ooh, just all the terrible things that you think about. And then you read the reviews and there's like maybe two or three sentences that you're just like, really, you know? Yeah, they stick to you. That? <laughs> like that's, that's what you we got out of it. Yeah. And, um, and it, they're perfectly, I'm very, you know, again, like I'm super lucky and like it's, you know, I, uh, there is a perfectly great review and like I, I'm, I'm lucky to even have reviews, you know. I don't know. So, I mean, I just think they're all of that. Like, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really an extrovert. Like, I really love people. I love people one on one. You know, like I love to hang out and like really have authentic interactions with people. And so, doing this like public thing is not. It's just so uncomfortable for me. You know, it's uh, so too. hard. Yeah, doing readings, especially for me, like. And trying to find an interlocutor in every city that you've never been to. It's right. just like, and, and it also does make me feel that it's, I, I can't always, I can't help but think of other people who don't have access to people, you know, like, does this, what, what about that person who, you know, is just like in some small rural space in the middle of America who just comes out with their first novel like, how are they going to line up interlocutors all over the country? I just don't know. Like, it's kind of like the the letter of recommendation thing, you know, or blurbs, you know. I just feel like it's still kind of rigged in that way. You have an incredible set of blurbs, I must say. I do. I You're, do. You've got a great, you've, you've built a great network in writing. Like, I mean, among writers. Right. Like, you, you've built a nice community. Thanks to people like you. Oh, God. What was That's that? True. That was the wind. Oh. <laughs> There's like a wind tunnel on the house. Somebody just, I don't know who it was, but some literary ghost just uh, entered the podcast. Well, Audrey Huxley used to live here, uh, like across the highway from me. Maybe it was Aldous Huxley. I will choose to yeah. believe that it was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, thanks to, you know, the nervous breakdown in the community that was built there. And I think that I came in at a time that was, I was really fortunate for that too, similar to like being in LA County in foster care where it was like the internet did this thing where like open channels, you know, like Facebook happened and it was completely normal and not stalkerish or weird for me to like message someone on Facebook after reading a story that I loved, you know, in the New Yorker or something and being like, I really enjoyed this story and thank you so much for writing it. And then like us being friends, social media, like, and, and then becoming friends in real life. Like it just seemed to all happen at that time. Yeah. I well, you know, and I always advocate for this. If you read something that you like, tell the <laughs> author. Yeah. And it used to be that I would write, I would actually send letters and then social media happened and I, I would just contact people via social media. But now I might have to go back to writing letters, but it was always, it did, it helped my 
all those blurbs and stuff that was that was mostly by way of that you know and then I went to like a I went to Antioch which is like a low residency MFA program and when I went there all the faculty was just like two seconds away of becoming like incredibly famous and so like who I hope to like Cheryl Strayed okay she had written Torch at the time and she was you know teaching and then and then she was writing wild at night and you know and so i already we were already friends by that time got it um are you working on another book yeah just this dissertation which is oh, right. hopefully um yeah will be something it's like but what what kind of something you're thinking it'll be like a collection of stories or you think it's going to be like a novel <laughs> Well, it's going to be, um, no, because I'm, I'm at uh, USC under creative nonfiction, but it's going to be this fairy tale translation of these case records that I have. That sounds, like, that sounds like fiction. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's critical. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I'm happy for you. And Thank you. Uh, I'm very impressed with this book and... I hope it's okay for me to say I'm just impressed with your, like what you've, what you've survived and uh, how you've managed to find a way in the world to do such great work. Uh, it's incredible. Thank you. Is Thank you. I, that's amazing to hear. I, I love to hear. I want all the gold stars I can get. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, don't I, mean wanna... I, I have like great, regard for you so i i'm it's really lovely to hear that you know i mean you've been able to cobble this life together and teach other people how to do it in a way i think that's really generous and lovely i'm cobbling i'm a cobbler, <laughs> I'm a cobbler as it turns out <laughs> You're a professional cobbler. I think it's the only way to do it. I mean, right there, occasionally there's like the person who gets the magical ride, but everybody else is cobbling. 99% of people are cobbling. Yeah, but sometimes like not so successfully. Like, I mean, I see you and like you manage to like have, you know, a wife and children and a smile and I don't know. Like you're always like you have. I feel like you have like a fully fleshed out existence. Like you know, you have your creative life and your home life. I don't know. That's the way it looks from where I'm sitting. <laughs> and I'm always like, that's people do that. That's cool. <laughs> Barely. It's not as it's not as elegant as it looks. I'll I'll, I'll tell you that. But I uh, I appreciate it and. Congratulations to you, and uh, I'm kind of jealous of your scene up there in Wrightwood in the mountains with seasons. Y'all can come up. Nature and I'll see the nature. Ghosts, the ghost of Aldous Huxley, and you know. <laughs> it's true. If you're ever craving snow, we've got it. All right. Well, nice to see you. Congrats one more time, and uh, I wish you well on your PhD and your uh, fairy tale deconstructions. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody, there we have it. That was Melissa Chadburn, and her debut novel is called A Tiny Upward Shove, available now in a beautiful hardcover edition from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. 
You can find Melissa on the internet at melissachadburn.com. She's on Instagram. She's on Twitter. Her handle on Twitter is at Melissa Chadburn. One more time, the book is called A Tiny Upward Shove. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every episode of this show is made available to listeners free of charge. Almost 800 episodes at this point. It's a listener-supported show. So if you listen regularly, if you like the show... If you like this episode, if you got something from it, and if you have a dollar to spare, you can support this show for as little as $1 a month. That's it. $1 a month. Drop a dollar in the hat and uh, continue on your way. You can also uh, support the show at higher levels if you want. $3 a month, $5, 10 20 whatever you want, whatever you uh, prefer. And as you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth. So just go over to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. This podcast has a weekly email newsletter. You should sign up for that. It's free. It's easy. Once a week, I will email you a list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting. I also will tell you about the latest episode. It's quick. It's like an enumerated list once a week. To sign up for the email newsletter, just go to otherppl.com. You can also sign up for it at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel, so if you're a YouTube person... Go search for the show by name, Other PPL, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People podcast has its own app. So if you would like to get the Other People app, that's a good thing to do. It, too, is free. It's a great way to listen. Get the Other People app wherever you get your apps. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. If you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there waiting for you. Not sure exactly who's going to be on the program next week. I'm still sorting it out, but stay tuned. All right? I will have an episode for you. Don't worry. It's going to happen.